Darling, I was on a vacation recently and stayed at an Airbnb, and then I realized that while I was away, my empty house could be making money, honey. If you're someone like me that is busy and not home all the time, your home could be an Airbnb. And it's actually pretty simple to get started. Even if you don't have a whole house, you could start with just a spare room. Personally, I really enjoy staying at Airbnbs. I really do. I love a good Airbnb. Who is that? Come back, British you. And it really is a great way to like support local economy and support local people. So Airbnb is fabulous. And I know I was doing my British voice earlier, but we love Airbnb. So think about what you could do with some extra cash. Whether you're looking to treat yourself to something nice, like a shopping spree or a spa day, or start a whole side hustle, Airbnb can help you be that person. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the brand new book, Dear By Men, author, peer counselor, and creator of the hashtag Bisexual Men Speak, J.R. Youssef offers an unapologetic guide for readers who are Black, Mask, and Bi. The book features cutting social analysis, personal stories, and reclaims bi-plus visibility in a culture of erasure. It also offers practical feedback on how to unlearn internalized biphobia and homophobia, fight back against erasure and stigma, navigate sex, dating, partnerships, marriage, friendship, and much more. It's available now wherever books are sold. North Atlantic Books is offering listeners 25% off plus free shipping. Purchase Dear By Men at www.northatlanticbooks.com and use code CURIOUS25 at checkout for 25% off and free shipping. U.S. mailing address required. Let's face it, I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon, and neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? Honey, is it like a gorgeous free flight that you would have had to have paid for, but honey, you're saving that flight money. Is it a gorgeous room upgrade? Is it like a gorgeous, like two bedroom suite instead of a one bedroom suite? So you're like in-laws or like your friend could stay over there in that room. So you don't have to like hear them doing whatever with what they're doing in your, your guys's room. Is it like really adulting? Oh, I love adulting. And you know what else I love? is not waiting to make smart financial decisions. I also love paying my credit cards off in full every month because like, yes, good credit. So let's like do try to do that and like making responsible decisions, which we love. Um, But anyway, don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerdwallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Happy holidays and welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness and every week I sit down for a 40-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's special episode where we are going a down memory lane because it's Christmas and everyone deserves a week off, but maybe you're new to Getting Curious and maybe you don't want to have to download Stitcher yet, but it's so worth it because really there's a whole bank of gorgeous episodes that are like... They go back to December 15th, 2015, which is when we started getting curious. And this episode is from our very first episode, which, like I said, aired on December 15th, where we were joined by Dr. James Gelvin, professor of Islamic studies at UCLA, where I asked him, 
What's the difference between Sunni and Shia Muslims, and why don't they love each other? So, without any further ado, and if you ever want to catch up on very much in the bank, uh, in the vault, getting curious episodes, make sure to download that Stitcher Honey. But without further ado, here's Dr. James Galvin and I from like four years ago. Almost. Oh, wait, no. It'll be five in December of 2020. Ah, Love everyone. Listen more now. Ah. Hi, everyone. So this week on Hey Felicia, we have James Galvin, a professor of modern Middle East history at UCLA. Welcome, James. Thank you for having me. Um, So do you prefer Jim or James? Jim. Okay, great. So we're going to do Jim, guys. So Jim... I am from the middle of America. I am very much into current events. And I, when I read about everything that's going on in the Middle East, the, I don't understand what is the difference between a Sunni and a Shiite Muslim, and why don't they love each other? What's the deal? First of all, am I even saying that right? Well, uh, it's probably better to say she. She. Actually, when you say she, there's the sound in there that uh, you probably can't do, and I wouldn't be able to teach you within the next 20 minutes or so. But it's called an ein sound, and you get it by sticking your fingers down your throat and seeing what muscles contract. Not recommended for after lunch. Okay, you guys. Did you hear that? I, I can I can imagine what you're talking about, though. So uh, if I was to say that sentence again correctly, it would be, what is the difference between a Sunni and a Shi Muslim, and why don't they love each other? Okay. That's good. Okay. That's good. I love that. So, so... I grew up in an Episcopal church in the middle of America. I definitely, like, you know, held the crucifix, and I walked up to the high altar, and we did the whole thing. I was a little acolyte boy. It was very fierce. So I really don't understand very much about the Islamic faith, but I, I very much want to. So, you know, we so right now it's the year 2015, which is, you know, 2015 after the death of Christ. So when did the Islamic faith start? Like, what year was that? That year was 622, and it's actually very interesting. You raise a very good point. Because Christ was born, and then we start the calendar after that, and then B.C., before Christ, is before that. Right. But what's really important to Islam is not uh, Muhammad, per se. It's the community. And the birth of the community uh, took place at a different time than the birth of Muhammad. It took place in 622, when Muhammad fled from Mecca to Medina and established the first uh, viable Islamic community. And so Muhammad, 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 does it matter? Muhammad. Muhammad. So There's Mo- also a letter, by the way, in that, which you probably can't get. It's the aspirated age. You're an actor, right? Uh, only, not really. Kind, like, kind of. Okay, it's the stage whisper. Oh. Muhammad. Muhammad. Yeah. Okay, great. So um, his main squeeze is Allah, like Jesus to God. Like, his God is Allah, right? Right. right. But main squeeze, again... Uh, believing Muslims take this stuff very, very seriously, so I think we probably should as well. His yeah. God is Allah. The thing is that, yeah, I'm absolutely Muhammad. Uh, uh, the Islamic faith is within the Abrahamic tradition, uh, where you had revealed religions, starting off, you know, with Judaism and then Christianity and uh, Islam. And the Islamic attitude is that uh, Islam is the natural religion that. Uh, God gave uh, several, uh, a large number, actually, of messengers the message. He gave it to the Jews, and they screwed it up. He gave it to the Christians, they screwed it up. And this is your last chance, man, because Muhammad is the seal of the prophets. He's not going to, there's not going to be another message again. You've got to get it right this time. And the thing about Islam that is so wondrous is that it is like the perfect monotheism. I mean, when you, talk, when you see these people uh, in ISIS, for example, 
and they mugging for the camera and they hold up their index finger, mm. obviously the wrong, ca- wrong finger there, uh, but they're holding up their in- index finger for the camera. It's to show the unity of God. It's in Arabic as Tawheed, the unity of God, which is a central tenet of Islam. Okay. Wow. That was a lot. So that is amazing. So in 622, we have Muhammad, Muhammad and he goes and establishes, did he establish the first mosque? Is that what like made it start in 622? Well, again, it was the first community. So he organized the first community in Medina. Um, Which is now? Medina in Saudi Arabia. Okay, that's actually right. what it is. Right. Okay, yeah. got it. Great. Right. Medina actually means city. Um, you know, so it's, it's no great shakes. Wasn't that difficult to come up with a name for it. Um, but uh, he had fled from Mecca and Medina. He was going to be, uh, he was persecuted in Mecca. Uh, oh. And then established that community in, in Medina. Uh, and then from there, in ten years, within 10 years or so, um, at the time of his death, they had established uh, Islam as a faith throughout all of Arabia. Uh, and then it spread out of there. Um, it spread as far as, uh, in the beginning, it spread as far as uh, Iran today. And then um, it spread into uh, Egypt and uh, across North Africa. Actually, uh, it's very interesting that he actually went into Spain. Mm. Uh, and French food would have been very different had uh, they gone even further than that, I'm sure. And that's why, too, like in Spain, you have a lot of the, like, that like North African architecture that you see, right? Exactly, the Alhambra and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. And the, the island between North Africa and Spain is is Gibraltar, and it actually comes from the words Jebel Tarek. Tarek was leader of the Arab forces that crossed from North Africa into Spain. Jebel Tarek got changed or over time to uh, Gibraltar, and that's why we have it now. Wow, that's fascinating. Okay, so six twenty two, we've got Muhammad establishing the first community for the mm-hmm. faith of Islam and that and 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 then that time we've got we've got it spreading to Iran, North Africa, in what Saudi Arabia. And then at what point do we have uh I'm Sunni and you're Shi. When did that happen? Okay, the the real strong identification occurred later, uh, about uh, 100 200 years later. But even before the death of Muhammad there was a question. And and that question actually was this, who's going to lead the community? And uh, both Sunnis and Shis go back to a story called the Pool of Qom. Muhammad made his first um, migration, uh, first pilgrimage, excuse me. Question. No. I'm yep. sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No problem. So there's the question in the community, or so there's a qu- who's going to lead the community. So that is after, after, after Muhammad. Muhammad. Okay, gosh. gosh. Yeah. Okay, got, got it. Okay. So anyway, he goes to his, his last pilgrimage, and then on the way home, he stops at this Pool of Qom. And... Um, it's disputed, actually, what he says at this point. Uh, he says, look, I'm going to leave you soon. I'm going to die. I'm going to go back to God. Um, but uh, I got two guarantees for you. Okay, one is the word of God, the Quran. And then it's disputed what the second one was. The Some people say, second is my example, which is sunnah in Arabic. And the second one is my family. Okay, so the two things could have been the Quran and my example or the Quran and my family. Uh, Sunnis, of course, say it's the example of Muhammad that he intended for, and that he did not intend that there be some sort of special status for his family. And as a matter of fact, the first person to lead the community uh, was called a caliph, which means just successor, Khalifa. Uh, the first oh. person to lead, lead the community uh, after him wasn't uh, a member of his family, um, and they kept on going from there. Um, and the group within the community, uh, well, these, the others were chosen, by the way, by consensus. And one of the differences between Sunnis and Shis is that Sunni is a, comp- 
completely above board, consensual, out in the open sort of uh, uh, religion, uh, whereas the Shi's tend to be esoteric. There is stuff that that uh, people do not hear, uh, do not have that only the leaders of the community actually have. So in terms of the Sunnis, the successors were chosen by consensus among the elders of the community. Among the people who would become Shi's later on, they thought it should be uh, Muhammad's son-in-law and cousin, Ali. Okay. So to recap that so far, we have... So Muhammad says, you guys, I'm going to go back home to Allah soon. You got to figure out who's going to steer the bus. Uh, And the Sunnis thought, again, just in like... Can I cause I'm, say exactly what you said just a second ago, but quicker? So, like, we had the Sunni, the, the Sunni thought that it should be by consensus by what the people thought, and the, who later became the Shi thought that it should have been specifically some of the people in uh, Muhammad's family. Absolutely. Now, if you want me to really make the story a little bit more complex, here's the thing. Uh, the Shis felt that the uh, leader of the community— um, who was not part of the family at the time, the first no, no, no. one. Uh, that the, leader, the person who should be the leader of the community has certain attributes that makes him special. Number one, he, un- he has a special ability to uh, understand the faith, uh, which, as I say, was a bit esoteric. Um, he also is the one who will know who his successor is because he has a roadmap for that sort of thing. And thirdly, he is infallible in, in this sort of, of decision-making. So things go on. Ali's children, they have children. Each one is designated by the predecessor, and it goes on and on. Then you get a problem with the sixth one. The sixth one is a um, chooses his elder son to succeed him. Um, uh, and this is where and when again? Uh, we're talking, oh, within five or six, well, six generations after um, um, Muhammad. So this is like roughly like... 800-something. That's a little before then, but yeah. I mean, we, you know, we have that. 700-something. Right, okay. exactly, exactly. Um, anyways, plus this, he designates his elder son, but his elder son dies. Oh. You know? And uh, his elder son is named Ismail. Um, he dies, and then he names Musa, his second son. But that can't be, can it? I mean, because basically he's infallible. He can't make a mistake, mistake like that. So the Shi'i community splits for the first time. Some of them become followers of Ismail, who disappeared, they say, didn't really die, but went into occultation, they call it. He's around. We don't know where he is. And he was the eldest son of the sixth guy. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Ismail. And they call themselves Ismailis. And this is where the current community of Ismailis are. You've probably heard the story of the assassins. They were Ismailis, too. There was a a very important monarchy in in, uh, Egypt that was was Ismaili. They were also known as Seveners. Mm. Okay. Um, but most of the community stayed with Musa. They were called Musawis, and they went down to, uh, unfortunately, the 11th, um, who had a similar situation. Uh, there wasn't a heir to the 11th one. So what happened? Well, it named, uh, the idea was that there was an heir. He also, like Ismail, is an occultation. He has just disappeared. He's not, he, never, he did exist, but he didn't die. He's just around. And at the end of time, he will reappear and deliver the community and create a world of, of justice. You know? These are called Twelvers. Hmm. And these are the predominant grouping now. Oh, within, which is because of the, like, cause like the Seveners were the number seven and then 12. Okay, got it. Right. And this is a community in Iran. Mm-hmm. But you also have the Seveners still exist, the Ismaili community in India and other places as well. Aga Khan, so the Twelvers are in Iran now? Right. 
They, oh. they are the predominant religion within Iran. They are the governing religion within Iran. So that's who like the Ayatollah is. That's where the Ayatollah is, right? Oh. And here we get to a different, different, uh, another difference between Sunnis and Shiites. There are no ranks among the clerisy in um, Sunni Islam. Okay, everybody is a cleric. Now, some people are more respected. I'm so sorry, but... you got you guys, you. This man is such a saint right now, talking to me. You would not believe it. I wish you could see his face and my face. Don't you just love when someone looks at you and says, what were you up to last night? Well, no matter how late you were up the night before, Lumify Redness Reliever Eye Drops can help your eyes look more refreshed and awake. Lumify dramatically reduces redness in just one minute to help your eyes look brighter and whiter for up to eight hours. No wonder it has over 6,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. You won't believe your eyes. You know you can trust them, though, because they're made by the eye care experts at Bausch & Lomb, and they're backed by six clinical studies. Eye doctors trust them, too. They're the number one recommended redness reliever eye drop. The one and only Lumify is an amazing drop that will have people saying something's different about you in the best way possible. So check out LumifyEyes.com to learn more. Okay, because that's the whole thing about like, because in Iraq we have both, but then so basically what you're saying is in Iran right now we just have she's no, not just, but they're, predominantly, they're predominantly she's. So in the in the governing people are right. she's definitely, but then in Iraq we have we have more of both, and right. then wasn't shifting wasn't Mubarak who took over when Saddam got ousted. Not Mubarak, he's Egyptian. Who was that guy? Who was the first Iraqi president? Nuri al-Malakai. Oh, right. So he, he, what was he? He was she. He's she. The majority of the population of Iraq is she, although there is a larger number of Sunnis in Iraq than there are in. And the other thing about it is that Iraq didn't become predominantly she, or the territory that would become Iraq after the uh, First World War. Uh, It didn't become become predominantly she until uh, the 19th century. It's oh, very, very late. Which is actually the 1800s, you guys. <laughs> yeah. So so, so Iraq did not become mainly Shi until like the 1800s. Right. Now, there are other groups as well. Maybe somebody, people in your audience know about what's going on in Yemen right now. Uh, the Houthis that the Saudis are trying to destroy, actually. Uh, they're Niners. Oh, okay. so they're from so, the ninth. Did, right. Do they call them dynasties? Uh, no, it's just the successors to the prophet. But so there's no like... Sh- Title. There's not like dynasty. Uh, you know, like the. There's no like one of those. Uh, they call them imam. Oh, imam. Okay, got it. Right. You guys. Now the again. Uh, there's a difference between imam and Sunni among Sunnis and imam and Shi's. The imam in, among Sunnis uh, among Shi's, for example, there has been. Uh, most people think there are twelve of them, um, but you could have any number up to that. In terms of Sunnis, they have imams, but imams are nothing special. Imams are just guys who get up and lead the prayers right. on Friday. So that's, you know, you, so you hear this all the time in the Sunni community. Whereas in the Shis, they're like, it's more of like a royal family type thing. Right. And then right. in this, and then in the in the Sunnis, it's kind of just like, it can be like, a, a Christian would call it like a preacher or something, or like a minister. Like well, anyone it, can be you it. You need somebody to, to lead the prayers. Right. So, you know, the guy who gets up in front of the prayers and, and leads them, that's that's their mom. So you're absolutely right. It could be just anybody. Got it. So... And let me just, just say what a majority of, of Muslims are Sunni Muslims. Majority are. Right. There are a few countries in which uh, Shis uh, dominate. 
uh, Iraq is one. Um, so Iraq is the Shi's are majority in Iraq. Iraq. Um, they're also in Iran, of course, and in Bahrain. They're a very large majority in Lebanon, mm-hmm. and they're also make up large majorities of 40, 45% or so, if you consider Zaydis to be Shi's, which they do, um, they, in Yemen and- What about Saudi countries. Arabia? They are a uh, minority within Saudi Arabia as well. Shi's are. Right. And this is what the Saudis are definitely afraid of, because the Shi's happen to inhabit the what's called the Eastern Province. Which is probably where the oil is. That's where all the oil is. So, and then that's why we like Saudi Arabia and the states because they're Sunni majority, which is opposite of Shi, which is who runs Iran. Well, we like Saudi Arabia and the states because it's got oil. Oh, okay, got I it. I mean, you know, and basically they happen to be Sunnis. And so fundamentally, when they got to get us dragged into one after another of these confrontations in yeah. Yemen or Syria or whatever, you know, we, we just follow a long suit. And right. that, of course, puts us on the opposite side as Iran. As Iran. Now, here's the thing, though, that's really important. It's not a Sunni-Shi thing. I mean, in the very beginning, you said, you know, why they hate each other and that sort of stuff. They've lived together for centuries right. now, you know, and you know, mixed neighborhoods in Iraq and mixed neighborhoods throughout the you know Arab world. There are other groups called Alawites that uh, claim to be Shi. And like Yadazis, which is our, what, what are those? Yazidis. Like an, uh, yaz, yaz, how do we say that? Yazidis. Yazidis. Okay, they're not, they're not Sunnis or Shis. As a matter of fact, they're, they're not even Muslim. Are they Christian? No, they're a distinct sect. It's actually very interesting. They're very syncretic. So they take a little bit out of Christianity. They take a little bit out of Islam. They take a little bit out of Zoroastrianism. Ooh. They take a little bit out of, of other pagan religions as well. And, you know, they mix them all up, and they've created their own theology. They've created their own community and that sort of stuff. I love someone who's about a mix and match. <laughs> okay. So we like that. So, their problem right now is, of course, that— um, The Shis are massacring them? No, this, the uh, ISIS is massacring them. And, and who is ISIS? ISIS is radical Sunni. They're, oh. Know, okay, there's, here's a th- another difference between Shis and Sunnis. The sources that you could draw from. According to Sunnis, the most important sources are the Quran, which is actually, it's not the Bible, the equivalent of the Bible. It's the equivalent of Jesus Christ, actually. Uh, it is an emanation of God. It's not a book that's written by God. It's coextensive with God. So that's one thing. And something called the Hadith. The Hadiths are the sayings of the prophets and, and his first, uh, the prophet and his first community. Why is that important? Because... The prophet wouldn't let anything wrong go on in his community. So therefore, you go by his sayings, what he did, what the first community did. And that way, you can actually see um, uh, how to model your own community. So those are the two sources in Sunni. In Shi, there's a third source as well, obviously, the imams, the uh, 12 imams that could change doctrine as you went down. Because isn't that like what a fatwa is? Well, fatwa is a uh, 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 just in Sunni or in Shi Islam. It's just a ruling, okay? It's like um, in Judaism, you have the exact same thing where you ask a prominent rabbi, rabbi it's got to be a yes or no question. It's got to be posed in that way. Uh, for example, can we um, use the television to see the sighting of the moon to begin Ramadan? You know, I mean, that sort of thing. Um, and he will say, yes, you can, or no, you can't. He will also give you a justification for his reasoning, but it has to be a yes or no sort of, sort of answer. The Sunnis like Al-Qaeda, uh, like um, ISIS, they're called Salafis. Salafis are people who want to go back to the first generation, the Salaf Salah. They want to go old school. Right, really old school. Now, the thing about it is this. There's a whole variety of Salafis. The one that um, you know we don't hear very much about are what are called modernist Salafis. 
They're the ones who say, okay, let's go back to the original texts and find out exactly what Muhammad felt about women's rights. Hmm. Muhammad was pro-women's rights. You know how you could tell? He was pro-women's rights because he stopped uh, uh, female infanticide. Mm. He was pro-women's rights because he said you could ha- you can you can have four wives, not more than that, but he had to treat them all equally. Now I've been married twice already, so I know that it's virtually impossible to treat anybody equally anyway. But so, in theory, he was the- pro-woman. And so yeah, but those are the modernists who and try the, to find you. Know. And the crazy ones are well, not the crazy ones, but the the radical ones are like we want to go back to the original as long as it means like that we get to do what we want to do. Well, it's it's sort of like think of it this way: the modernists use is, uh, the sources as a touchstone. The the um, uh, Taliban. Al-Qaeda, ISIS, use it as a roadmap. Which, P.S., what I'm gathering from what you're saying is is Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, ISIS are all Sunni. Right. Okay. Then Iran's leaders are she. she. And then, okay. And then what about Hezbollah? Hezbollah is um, she. It started out as a group that was there to protect the Shi community in Lebanon. Um, and they morphed into a major political actor in, in Lebanon. Now they're fighting, of course, on the side of the government of Hafez al-Assad in Syria. Now, Hafez al-Assad represents, and here we go again, getting a little complex, he represents a sect that uh, is, has been sort of put under the Shi'i wing. She, uh, he got a ruling uh, from a prominent Shi'i cleric saying that his sect, which is called Alawi, is uh, a branch of Shi'ism and should be treated as such. Um, many Sunnis, for example, and a lot of Shi'is as well, don't think of it as such. They think of it as some heterodox thing. You know? But anyway, since uh, this is, is one of the things that has Hezbollah fighting for them, but more important than that, actually. I mean, let's, let's get, take it out of the realm of religion and put it into the realm of politics. I mean, we have the split that's taking place in the Middle East um, between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And there's there, uh, Saudi Arabia on one side, Sunni, and Iran on the other. And they're kind of like she. the two biggest ones. They're the two biggest players in the block. In, you know, uh, there's also Turkey, which is much bigger than Yeah, uh, what's Ensap Endrogan? What's, he, what's his title? Is he Sunni he's or pre- Shi? Well, he well, I know is, he's president. He's, but president, but what... right. he's Sunni. Uh, the majority of the population in uh, Turkey is Sunni. Okay. okay. Uh, the, the big countries, you know, except for Iran, the majority tend to be uh, Sunni. Did you know that while over 60% of Americans dream of starting their own business, less than 20% of them ever take their first step? The reason? Building a business is tough. Having built a business or two myself, I know just how difficult the whole process is. But Taylor Brands is simplifying the business journey. From launching and managing to growing your business, Taylor Brands isn't just another tool. It's your online business partner from launch to success. With Taylor Brands, building your dream business becomes an effortless experience. Yes! From LLC information to bookkeeping, invoicing to acquiring licenses and permits, and even setting up your bank account, Taylor Brands handles it all seamlessly. And our listeners will receive 35% off Taylor Brands LLC information plans using our link, taylorbrands.com slash JVN. That's T-A-I-L-O-R-B-R-A-N-D-S dot com slash JVN. So start your business journey today with Taylor Brands.
Uh, where was I? I'm so sorry. I, I'm just like so fascinated right no, now. My little, my little ADD brain is everywhere. So, uh, oh, 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 in terms of what's going yeah, on. Yeah, the split of Saudi Arabia and, and, Iran. and Iran. Okay. So, in the 1980s, there was a, there was a war between Iran and Iraq. Yes. And um, the Syrians did some, you know what they say about prize fighters punching above your weight? The Syrians is a small country. It was Syria is a small country with, you know, its economy is really crappy. Um, and so how does it punch above its weight? Well, it made a really brilliant decision in uh, the 1980s. It took the side of Iran in the Iran-Iraq war. Every other Arab country took the side of Iraq in the Iran-Iraq war. What did this do? This boosted its uh, importance in the uh, inter-balance, inter-Arab balance of power. So Saudi Arabia... Because Syria came out on top with Iran. Uh, well, it, it was a stalemated war. Oh. But Saudi Arabia, for example, kept on trying to bribe Syria to switch sides. And Iran, of course, kept on forgiving Syrian debts if it would stay with, uh, with Iran. So you have that thing taking place. So it, it wasn't that Syria happened to be um, Shi and, or Alawite and Iran was Shi. It's just that Hafez al-Assad was a cool operator, was a really smart strategic thinker. And he was the Syrian leader he who got the ruling about— He was the about... father of the present one, uh, Bashar al-Assad. Okay. Okay. Ah, okay. well, let's, let's just continue down the yes, story because yes, it's yes, really yes, important yes, for your listeners yes. to get this. Um, so Saudi Arabia and Iran, you know, were placed on opposite sides in the Iran-Iraq war, but that doesn't really count for, for much now. What really counts is Syria and Iran were placed on the same side. The alliance was not religious, it was political for Syria. Okay. Now what you have is a couple of things taking place within the Middle East. You have, for example, uh, a spillover of the, um, uh, what's going on in Iraq and a spillover of what's going on in Syria. And both of them are putting these communities against each other. How are they doing that? Well, it's very easy. It's an identity issue. Okay, In Syria, for example, the regime is affiliated with the Shi'i communities, Alawite regime, majority population are Sunnis. So how do you get the population, the Alawite population and the Christian population, and while you're at it, the Druze population, all the other minority populations to support you? They're coming. They're going to get you, you know? And that cre- it creates this idea that religious identifications are political identifications. Now, this took place in Syria. Uh, I mean, Syria, I mean, I've lived there. I mean, people knew they were different. There were Shis and Sunnis and that sort of thing. People knew that, of course. Um, they also told stories in the same way that in the United States you tell against you know, stories about m- minorities and majorities and that sort of stuff based on race or yeah. religion or something like that. Um, you know, and these people are not, these people are stupid and that sort of stuff. You know, it's just the usual sort of stuff. But they lived together. They lived on top of each other. Okay, now what you have is, of course, they live separately. And that's going to mean, what that means is that sectarianism is never going to leave. But anyway, so you have the spillover from the, uh, what's going on in Iraq. And you have spillover of what's going on in Syria throughout the Arab world. And then you get the Saudis feel, uh, fearing that the United States is withdrawing from the Middle East, which is something we probably should have done a long time ago anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what they're trying to do now is to build a coalition against their biggest rival, which is Iran. And how do you do that? You play on identity politics again. In Bahrain, for example, um, a majority of the population is Shi. The ruling family is Sunni. And when there was a intersectarian rebellion, both Sunnis and Shis out on the street, the government, the ruling family, painted it as Shi versus Sunni to get the Sunnis to circle their wagons and then invited the Saudi Arabians and the um, uh, United uh, Arab Emirates to come into Bahrain to, put down, uh, to help put down the rebellion. Okay? So this is what's going on throughout the entire um, uh, war, Arab world at the present time. 
So it's been people are just fighting people. Sectarianism is like is very highest, right? But it appears to be a sectarian dispute. And all these guys, just all you guys who are out there listening, anytime people say this is time immemorial, this goes back. This is a primordial conflict. It's bullshit. It's just a total, absolute bullshit. I mean, the, the balances weren't there before. People lived together before. It was the making it political. Sometimes an outside power would do that. When the French moved into Algeria, for example, they did that. Uh, when the great powers intervened in Lebanon in the 19th century, in 1860, they did that as well. They read it as a sectarian dispute, and they made it that way. Um, sometimes it emerges that way. Sometimes just a political entrepreneur. Hey, I'm, I, want, I want power. So how am I going to get power? Well, I'm going to invent this thing called a Shi community or a Sunni community, and I'm going to lead that community. And sometimes governments do it as well. So, I mean, for me, it's like I have absolutely no idea. Like you're you've just like exploded my little baby brain so widely. Um, and I mean, I absolutely find it completely fascinating. But so at this point, it, it sounds like we have a lot of action going on in the family of countries that is the Middle East. Um, what I hear you saying, if we rewind it a bit, is that she people of the Shi Islamic faith had a feeling that after Muhammad died, it was to be passed down in a more of like a lineage royal family, right, a sort exactly. of way. And then the Sunnis were like, no, we kind of want like it to not be that way. Like more like if you feel inspired by it or you want to lead prayer, like it, it was just a little bit more open. Fast forward that, like that was 600. Now we're 2015. So that's like what? 1400 years. Mm-hmm. So 1400 years later, We've got these factions that for really, though, can have kind of been like at war and at peace off and on the whole time. Right. Yeah. I mean, basically, uh, more often than not at, at, at peace with each other. I mean, people and because in Syria, that's like the old that's like one of the oldest civilizations around. And like you were saying, like they were living on top of each other, like Christians, Jews, Shis, Sunnis. And it right. was like kind of all working. And then you had that guy who was the father of Bashar al-Assad, who got his type of which was called what again? He's an Alawite. An Alawite. He got the ruling on that, which was made it to be part of a she, more of a she, a she categorization. Mm-hmm. Right. He passes away. Bashar comes in. And now at this point, what was Saddam? Uh, Saddam Hussein? Mm-hmm. This is very interesting because Saddam Hussein's regime is very much similar to uh, Assad's regime. He was a minority. He was a Sunni. Assad is, is an Alawite. He's a minority also. And that's why they were so stable. They could count on, first of all, a very coherent, small ruling group that couldn't turn on each other. Right. They turned on each other. They were all dead. So uh, all the relatives, all the uh, members of the They same, stuck together. Know, yeah. Same sect, et cetera, et cetera. And there's been a couple of defections, nobody really important in Syria, but not one Alawite has defected. The same thing with Saddam. These guys run a very, very tight ship. They have uh, their relatives. They have members of the same sect. Uh, people they can trust. They know that the minorities, other members of the Sunni community or other members of the Alawite community are going to circle the wagons around the regime because they know that wholesale or they fear wholesale massacres will take place if the regime falls. So these are the things that are very, very similar. The other one that's similar in that way is Bahrain. Right. Uh, it's fiercely anti-gay, no? Uh, well, all the Gulfies are. Oh, they are, right? Yeah. There are no one's sheet there. And you know what? That's why I love the most. This is super non sequitur. But I loved the one, I think it was Ayatollah, who met that transgendered Iranian activist. And then he issued a fatwa on, like, it's not cool to be gay, but you can be transgender, which is why Iran is one of the, like, <laughs> transgender capitals of the world. Because, like, if you are gay there, you just have a sex change. And then you're okay. P.S. Colin, how are we doing on time? 
Okay, so that's cool. So, uh, so uh, we could all start to wrap it up. So not until you plug my books. No, uh, we're, we're not, I mean, that's <laughs> not even. We're going to get there. Okay. So, but in Syria, uh, so now. It is part of why the U.S. does, because, you know, Russia is like about Bashar, like Russia seems to like Bashar. We seem to not be about Bashar because he was kind of mean to his people with like the whole like chemical weapons. And like we Mm -hmm. aren't too sure about him. Uh, And when I say we, I mean like what I read about our government feeling about the because we don't want him to stay in power, according to what I read. Yeah, but we don't want him to be toppled and then there being chaos. Like it seems like we're kind of like you know, it seems like it's just that's it's. You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah, we're damned if we do. I think what's going to happen is that uh, first of all, you can read the Russian thing in a very interesting way, which is the way you can read it is that it's not such a bad thing after all because the government was losing. Bashar was. Bashar was losing. Yeah, and now they're going to stabilize him a little. Now they're going to stabilize him. And that's it. You're going to reestablish a stalemate, and you're only going to have negotiations if everybody views it as a stalemate, and they can't do anything. If it's not viewed as a stalemate, why should the winning side uh, negotiate? Yeah, right. Just just kick butt. So uh, So hopefully this will be a peace, something leading to a potential peace deal? A potential peace deal. uh, There's a couple of things that, that probably will happen. Number one, Iran has to be brought into it. Because mm. if Iran's not brought into it, they'll just be a spoiler. Which but maybe other, now they will, because like you know, with the, the Iran nuclear right, deal, maybe they're right. going to be more friendly. Now we're more friendly, to, more friendly too. We kept them out of Geneva one, Geneva two, the two yeah. negotiations. But, more uh, the merrier. Yeah. Let's let's get everyone in on no, that. You're absolutely right. There's got to be a grand bargain here. The Russians have got to be involved. We have to be involved. You know, the you know Saudis have to be involved. God bless their wicked little. But yeah, because um, I love. I mean, I know that this could be controversial to say, but I love that Saudi head wrap. It's my favorite of all of them. <laughs> it's like the white and red one, right? It's like uh, white. The, well, and it's white, but they wear the. Yeah, the right. I love yeah. that one. It's my yeah. favorite. Yeah. That would be my choice if I had like outfit wise. Um, so, uh, oh, but let me just say one more thing about it. If the series, if there is negotiated negotiations, this, the negotiated settlement that'll probably happen will be. Uh, that the regime will stay, and maybe Assad would go. Ooh, uh, so his family would stay in power, but he's got to hit the road. No, the others would stay in power. In other words, the security will stay in power, the military people oh. will stay in power, and that sort of stuff. But his family's got to go. Yeah, his family's okay. got to go. And the reason for that is because, uh, for two reasons. Number one, the Russians need an exit strategy if they're going to fight. Right. And this is a perfect excuse for them to leave. They've won. You know, right. I mean, okay. and, and the they second love that. thing is the Americans are really afraid of another Libya, particularly on Israel's border. So Oof. they don't want that to, to yeah. happen. So they want an electrical grid, they want a banking system, they want a security apparatus in there when the fighting stops that will be able right. to keep things running. Because I'm very pro-everybody, everybody. I love I love them all. I want everyone to be happy. Uh, so really, really quick before, uh, to end up, and I need this in a really quick... Uh, so she, Sunni, is either one more fabulous with gays and women? Like, is either one nicer or more, like, optimistic on it? Is there more leeway for us, like, being, like, friends? Well, you started off by saying that you are Episcopal and yeah, so on yeah. and so forth, and you know the Episcopal Church has slowly changed, shifted its position mm-hmm. on, on on gays mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff. Uh, we can't look at it as Sunnis being unfriendlier or friendlier or anything like that. There, I have Sunni friends who are gay. I have Shi friends Ooh, who are gay. Okay, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's biological, of course, you're going to have that happen. But ideologically, like on the whole, one or the other, is it more known for being like more like liberal than the other? No. Well, you find liberals. Who are, uh, could be either or yeah, right? Uh, who wear their Islam sort of more lightly than others? Then you know it's it's perfectly fine. When you find the the hard conservatives, the, you know the ayatollahs on the one hand, 
um, or uh, on the other hand, ISIS or who right or the really conservative yeah. right 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 okay so that I like that answer so really it's just about like no mass generalizations here you find more liberal and conservative people in whatever exactly. fashion exactly exactly so okay so there's that um, I love that and then really quick last question uh, the, the, that gay mosque that opened in South Africa last mm-hmm. year that I read on Huffington Post is that she or Sunni runner or is it everybody. Um, Do you know? I don't know, actually. What's actually very interesting is that here in America, and this is why the Sunni-Shi thing, they get along, they share spa- uh, prayer space. Um, oh, I love that. You know, that sort of stuff. I mean, because here many, they do. Yeah, how many mosques are there? So there's only yeah. three blocks from my house. It's really pretty. Well, this is Los Angeles. I yeah. mean, this is like uh, uh, yeah, we're Tehran more... Central. Exactly. You know? I mean, that sort of thing. So I tell you this much. I got to have you back and talk more about this, okay, sure. uh, more specifically on things, because uh, this is great. My, I have so many millions more questions. But... I know that you have a couple amazing books out. One of which I'm definitely is like on my must read list: the the Arab Uprising and what you need to know. That's what everyone needs to know. What right. everyone needs to know. Right. But what's the exact title of that? The Arab Uprising is what everyone needs to know. The Arab Uprising and what everybody needs to know by Professor James Galvin. Is that what it says on the book? Or says a Jim? Right. Which did you write uh, on there? James L. Galvin. Got to be formal. So we're going formal on the book, you guys. So that's right. James Galvin on the book. He was Jim here, but that's that's fine. We love that. So please pick that up. Can they find that on iTunes? Can they find it in a bookstore? Where can we get it? Uh, Amazon's got it. They Amazon. Can find it, um, other places as well. You can Kindle it and so on and so forth. The other book is The Modern Middle East, A History, and it's right now in a fourth edition, so it just came out. Okay, great. So, And also, you guys can check out my Instagram because I'm about to force the amazing professor that's giving you all this amazing information to take a really cute selfie with me. And you can see a picture of him on my Instagram when this podcast is up. Uh, and thank you so much for coming and talking to us. Sure. Um, I'd love to have you back to talk more. I'd love that too. Uh, do you have any closing things you need to say? Get no, off your no, chest? No, no, no. This, this is a sort of infinite hole that we could just keep on piling more stuff into. Oh, I love that infinite hole. I love infinite holes. And thank you so much for coming on the show. And you just have a good day. And thanks, everyone, for listening. You too. Yay. If you follow me on socials or listen to Getting Curious and Pretty Curious, then you'll know I've been on a real makeup journey over the last few years. I've especially been enjoying a more colorful eyeshadow moment, and I've been loving incorporating Thrive Cosmetics' full line of makeup into my routine. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. One thing that's really major about Thrive is how much they're prioritizing giving back. It feels good to know that when I support Thrive, Thrive turns around and supports the communities around them too. I also love that their high-performance formulas are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free and have zero parabens, sulfates, and phthalates. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash curious. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash curious for 10% off your first order. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Benes. And here's a friendly reminder that the full archive of this show can be found exclusively on Stitcher Premium. To listen with no ads and hear bonus episodes, download the Stitcher app or visit their website at stitcher.com slash premium to sign up. My guest this week was Dr. James Galvin. You'll find links to his work in the episode description and whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, show them how to subscribe, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJBN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bossack. Getting Curious is produced by me, Julie Creo, Ray Ellis, Chelsea Jacobson, and Colin Anderson, with special guest bookings by Mary O'Hara. <laughs>